and welcome back to Rupture Radio's At The Roots interview series. I'm your host, Dermot Flood, and today I'm bringing you a very special interview with writer and activist Hadass Thier. We discussed Hadass's fantastic book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, an introduction to Marxist economics. In general, I find that a lot of people find economics and Marxist economics difficult to get to grips with, and I think the book is a clear and accessible entry point. A link to where the book can be purchased can be found in the episode description. Before we kick off, I'd also like to plug that Rupture Magazine, issue 5, has been released and can be found on the website linked in the episode description. This issue's theme is eco-socialism and has great articles on environmental racism, drug legalisation and building the eco-socialist left. Alright, so I'll transfer over to the first question of the interview, in which Hadass outlines how the capitalist system emerged and how this informs an understanding of the place of labour and general commodity production. Well, the first thing to say, which is a more general point, but I think uh, is important to keep in mind, is that the fact that capitalism emerged in really the last, very last stages of human history is just an important thing for us to keep in mind. For anyone who is interested in analyzing the world in order to change it, um, it's good to know that this is not just, um, you know, from time immemorial, just the way that human beings naturally interact with each other because um, that's built into human nature, built into our bones. So, First, I just think it's important to, part of why I started with a history um, is to ground our understanding of capitalism as, you know, a historical moment. It has, it had a beginning and it can have an end. Um, But then also, as you're saying, that it's an important uh, place to start in terms of understanding how it is that capitalism works and why it is that we are in the situation that we're in? Why is it the vast majority of humanity is forced to sell our labor in order to survive? And to, 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 to get at that question, you know, you can begin with the, 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 the start of how capitalism emerges. In order for capitalism to take hold, it really required a violent expropriation of the masses of people from their land uh, in order to create conditions uh, where capitalism would would take hold, would develop and flourish. Um, You know, how did it get to be the case that the vast majority of people um, have to sell our labor is because we we don't have access to the land. Um, We don't have access, um, you know, now to just more broadly, the means to sustain ourselves and our families. Um, So, you know, at at the time it was land and tools, uh, machinery to some extent. Um, now that goes further, machines, um, you know, and factories, software, all those kind of things, what Marx called the means of production. Yeah, so when capitalism emerged, it basically developed a new social order, one that required the severing of masses of people from access to land and tools, you know, whereas under feudalism, there was a peasantry that was daily violently coerced to turn over goods to their lords. In a capitalist society, you know, we've had a class of people that were, quote unquote, set free, you know, set free, you know, those under the veneer of freedom, um, you know, we created a new underclass of wage workers, a class of people that are free to work whatever they please, um, you know, but in practice are, are forced to work through economic coercion 
whether it's for one capitalist or another, um, are forced to work uh, or, or starve. And, you know, you can see what that means um, recently during the pandemic um, with, the, with the lockdowns. Um, you know, in, in, in the U.S., there was constantly a back and forth between Republicans and Democrats while Trump was in office that like the Republicans wanted to send everyone back to work. Democrats said, no, you know, stay home to contain the virus more or less. But um, but what in reality, what that meant is that it forced people to choose. Do we go about our lives again and risk our health um, or do we stay home and not have money to feed, um, you know, feed ourselves and our and our children? Yeah, and I think the the choice is quite stark and will be experienced by m- many people when, although you have many options for e- employment, um, due to the nature of competition between employers and workers, uh, especially, you are offering your services for as low as possible um, and are forced into uh, different conditions, whereas they have a degree of like levity that 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 you don't have just to, to start off in terms of marxist understanding of relations what does the marxist analysis of economics and political economy explain about the social relations behind the processes of production and i think connected to that first question what does it mean to treat capital as a social social relation between workers and capitalists right so in a nutshell capitalism is as you say, a social relationship based on exploitation. Um, Marx is very adamant to call it, to explain it as a social relationship, Um, you know, because it's not a coincidence that some people are rich and some people are poor. Your boss is particularly greedy. My boss is a little bit nicer and so on. Regardless of our individual bosses and their characteristics, there's a foundation in society. There's a social relationship at play um, there's not, it's not an anecdotal occurrence between you and your individual boss where, you know, the, the social relationship is such that employers and workers meet each other on a very unequal playing field, right? One owns the mean to produce what we were just talking about. One has, you know, one has the land, the factories, the software technology and so on. Um, and the other has no choice but to sell their labor in order to live. Um, so the workers and um, around the world, the vast majority of people, because we can't sustain ourselves um, without receiving a wage, we're forced to sell our capacity to work uh, to business owners in order to survive. And so on the flip side for bosses, their profits aren't the result of just you know good accounting or advertising or inventive ideas, although all those things exist and they do play a role, um, but that the the bigger picture is that they the, those profits are an outcome of exploitation. Again, part of why this is important, right, is that in, in mainstream discussion, it assumes that capitalists build up their wealth over time. You know, maybe they're particularly clever or hardworking um, in liberal circles. Maybe it's because they're particularly greedy or cunning, but either way, it assumes that there's something individual at play. Um, but the the, the social foundation of society, that of exploitation, is daily reproduced in our society outside of, you know, what it is that me or you or my boss or your boss individually thinks. Every day when we go to work and we produce a profit for someone else, uh, and that same thing happens in millions of workplaces around the world, 
the profit that's squeezed from workers reproduces that same relationship because then the bosses own those profits and they can utilize those profits to maintain a monopoly over over the means of production, over the land, the factories, and so on and so forth. Um, Every day that we work, more profit flows to them. Every more profit that flows to them um, is their ability to monopolize uh, the the means of of production, uh, the means of producing wealth. Um, You know, and there are individual instances here or there where a working person can manage to work their way out of the working class, start a business and and get rich. It's it's not that that kind of thing is impossible, but it's the, you know, exception to the rule. The overall fabric of society keeps in place, you know, that relationship of exploitation. Yeah, and I think it's explained very well in the book how that relationship is reproduced by the system through expansion. Um, And I think Marx touched on that through centralization and expansion, um, especially into new markets and and new countries, which which we will touch on um, later on. You did touch on um, the concept of class there, which is obviously central to the Marxist analysis. Um, Something that establishment media and commentators internationally will consistently do is play down class as a factor in modern society. What is the concept and role of class outlined by Marx and why is it still an essential framing for understanding modern social relations? Right, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it's really the central framework for understanding everything about the way that our society operates. Um, But it's a very inconvenient thing to talk about um, in the mainstream media, if you are, you know, a defender of the status quo, then, you know, you know, you certainly uh, don't want to talk about class, the working class, the fact that the vast majority of humans are exploited, you know, to enrich a tiny minority is an inconvenient thing to talk about. And so when class is talked about in the mainstream, it's usually talked about in terms of, um, you know, that we live in a middle-class country. That, that's, that's definitely the way they talk about it in the U.S., and I don't know um, to what extent uh, that's the case in Ireland. So, you know, but in the U.S., that's hands down the mantra at all times. We're all middle-class. You know, politicians are always talking about how they're going to save the middle-class. Um, and then around the fringes of a middle-class society are some very rich people and some very poor people. Uh, and it's very rare to hear people talk about the working class, which is why, you know, again, in the in the U.S., um, that was part of what made Bernie Sanders' campaigns so refreshing, um, is he talked specifically about the working class. And, you know, really that had been not talked about um, for, for a long time in any kind of mainstream discussion. And it's also part of what's interesting about, you know, during the period, um, you know, at, at least at the start of the pandemic, um, in the U.S., there was a lot of talk about essential workers, which was really an admission that society just can't function without working class people in, in grocery stores and um, hospitals and schools and so on. So the, in, in mainstream discussion, when class is talked about, it's talked about in a quantitative way. You know, how much money does someone make? What are their spending patterns? What kind of education do they have? And those are not unimportant questions. Um, you know, they, they do, they are important markers and they tell us something, but they are really symptomatic descriptions. They're not the drivers of class. Um, so in my book, I use the example of, you know, in New York, I don't know what they're called elsewhere. We call them bodegas or like the corner stores, right? They typically run by an individual or a family. 
Um, and so the local bodega, you know, owner might make less money than, you know, a relatively well-paid union worker, like a bus driver in New York or whatever. Um, but that kind of covers over what their social relationship is to production, you know, that the bodega owner owns the fruits of their labor. They're charged with their own exploitation and the exploitation maybe of a couple of other people. The bus driver, even if they make more money, you know, clock in at a certain hour, clock out at a certain hour, have no control over what happens between when they clock in and when they clock out, um, you know, um, they have a very different relationship to, to their job. So the Marxist explanation, right, emphasizes that one's position in society isn't measured quantitatively, um, but it's determined by a person's relationship to, to labor, to the fruits of their labor, and to the means of production. So anyone that holds economic control over their workplace or dictates the terms of others' working conditions uh, or owns capital that can be invested in production, they are part of the capitalist class. And anyone that must sell their ability to work uh, for a wage and doesn't have the access to, you know, the ability to produce our own life necessities um, is part of the, the working class. Yeah, and I think what's importantly outlined by Marx in... Capital or yourself in the book um, is that relation to value and how value is created in society. Um, when you understand that uh, the worker's labor is what uh, creates the value through the products, the refinement of materials, or even production of serv- services, like you touch on in the book, um, how somebody might work in a coffee shop for eight hours, uh, might cover their own wage within four hours or even two hours, um, and then will spend the rest of the day creating surplus value. Um, you know, the, the money that is accumulated but does not derive back to the back to the worker but instead goes to um the owner or uh the the business itself just i was wondering if you could just um touch on or expand that the the role and nature of value that's outlined by marx and, and like what that plays in 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 society what role that plays so right that that is the basic um foundation of how capitalism works um workers produce on the whole, more than what we're compensated for. And that's built into the fabric of the system. Um, So that may vary, you know, from workplace to workplace. Um, But but even the best of jobs are built on a basic foundation of exploitation. Generally speaking, if a company isn't exploiting its workforce and it's not able to compete and would go out of business. Um, so, So what Marx talked about um, in, in how to explain, you know, how is it that, you know, exploitation produces a profit day in and day out, um, for, for the bosses? What's the, what's the secret there? Um, and he, you know, refers to it as kind of like a magical goose of capitalism that lays golden eggs. Um, and, and he says basically that the extra value that's produced for capitalists, like you said, it, it is extracted at the workplace by, you know, through through surplus labor. Once you've reproduced um, the value of your own wage, the rest of that um, money goes to your boss, um, in a sense. Um, and and the secret, you know, behind that kind of magical goose of capitalism is that 
under capitalism, our labor power, our ability to labor has become a commodity. And we sell our ability to labor. We kind of rent it out for a certain number of hours per day. Um, and once we are at work, our time is our, our bosses. It has nothing to do with what we produce, you know, what the value of what we produce is. It's we've clocked in, our time is theirs until we clock out. And um, the heart of understanding where profits come from is distinguishing between what our labor power is worth in the form of a wage and then what our labor produces in terms of the fruits of our labor. Um, they own our time and our ability to work during that time and what we produce for them, even if it's much, much more um, than what they've paid us is theirs to keep. Uh, and that's part of the agreement. Um, so, yeah, one of the examples that I use in my book is, you know, at Starbucks, um, you could get paid $120 for an eight hour shift. But typically at Starbucks, you can make $120 worth of coffee in an hour. Um, but you can't after an hour, just, you know, hand in your, your apron and say, you know, fair is fair. I made back the money you paid me. Um, you, they get to keep your labor for another seven hours. Um, and that's, time that you're essentially working for free, that that time is, is stolen time and it produces that surplus value. Um, and that, you know, gets us back to kind of what you were raising before about the importance of understanding capitalism as a social relationship, um, you know, of classes that have different material interests. One class owns the stores, you know, um, and the machinery um, and, and the other um, has one main commodity that we own that we can sell, which is our our labor power. Yeah, and I, I think that's the way it's outlined is is how intimately the capitalist has to pay to wages, um, how intimately tied that is to the cost of the products themselves, um, their outlay in terms of wages to workers, um, and the uh, means of production, whether it be machinery or software, as you touched on. Um, all of those things go into what they put out, and then that informs the, the price of the products. Um, and I think that's that's outlined quite well. Um, something I think you've touched on, the role of exploitation, um, but these are obviously, it's a central concept um, to, to Marx's analysis, along with the concept of alienation. Um, what do these terms mean and how do they relate to the status of the working class and the capitalist system? Right. So, so exploitation is basically that process that we were just talking about, right, where um, we produce more than the value of our wages. Um, the, the surplus value that we create at work um, is then you know, turned into a profit for the bosses. And that's how we are exploited daily. Um, that process is inherently and not surprisingly alienating. Um, and, you know, so the exploitation is uh, related to this concept of alienation, right? Where capitalism takes really the most human of characteristics, that of labor. Human beings have always labored um, we've always, you know, and done so collectively uh, in order to survive, in order to remake our environment around us, um, uh, to, to make it uh, livable for us. Um, that is something that um, from, from the, the beginning of, of human time really has been intrinsic to, 
to who we are. Um, capitalism takes this very human um, process and commodifies it, uh, buys it and sells it, um, and you know takes the fruits of our labor, uh, gives them to someone else, takes the decision making and the thought, you know, out of uh, the process of labor as much as possible. Um, you know, the whole process of de-skilling. Um, the more that our labor is de-skilled, uh, the cheaper it is for the capitalists. So they splice it up um, in different ways to have um, to get the more most bang for their buck. Um, they try to have as many of uh, workers in a given uh, workplace um, use the least amount of brain power as possible, um, have the least amount of training necessary. Um, so that the, the, the people that need more training and therefore more pay um, are fewer, uh, as few as possible. Um, and, you know, that whole process of taking our labor power, our, our human ability to labor and commodifying it um, leads to, um, you know, a process of alienation. And Marx has this brilliant quote that I can, you know, just paraphrase, but he talks about how workers only feel themselves when they're not at work. Um, and when we're at work, we feel outside of ourselves, right? Um, you, I think that's a feeling that we can all relate to, you know, you're at work and then the clock strikes five or whatever, whatever it is. And suddenly we're free, you know, we are, um, we're able to be ourselves. So um, for, for a large chunk of our, our lives, um, uh, uh, the majority of our waking hours are spent with our, our time and our labor belonging to somebody else. And I think that that's crucial um, just for the discontent that, that rises from people's like everyday lives or just their feelings of their jobs. I think it's a fairly common uh, concept for people to dislike their jobs and for it to be such a central thing um, necessary to, to, to people's livelihood. Um, it is very uh, strange when what to be touched on, I think. Um, another thing that, that Marx writes a lot about in Capital and in his other writings is a tendency towards concentration and centralization of capital. This was later built on uh, by other Marxists to give an understanding of global systems of capital uh, and imperial imperialism. Um, and what is this tendency and how does it relate to the role of uh, imperialism in the capitalist system or global systems of extraction and exploitation? So... In a nutshell, um, larger capitals tend to win out over smaller capitals. Um, the way that Marx talks about it is he breaks it down into two concepts. Concentration is the process where, you know, a single capital grows over time through accumulation, through that process of exploitation, um, that every time you know, production um, occurs and exploitation occurs, the capitalist winds up with more profit at the end of the process than they did in the beginning of the process. And then they use that extra profit to then invest into even greater scales of production. Um, so it's how, you know, you might get from one Walmart store opening up to accumulating profit and being and and then having 
two stores, a hundred stores, 500 stores. Um, you know, not all of that, but much of that happens through the process of, you know, exploitation and, and the accumulation of capital, um, getting invested and reinvested in greater uh, quantities. Um, alongside of that is the second concept that, that you raised um, that Marx talks about centralization of capital, which is that along the way, um, and this is also the case for Walmart as well, um, you know, companies buy other companies, a consolidation of, of, of capitals, um, you know, where through, you know, mergers and acquisitions, basically, that industries tend to become dominated by fewer and larger enterprises through consolidation. Um, and both of these processes, the concentration and centralization are greatly aided by credit, um, which gets to the importance of finance capital um, through, throughout the history of capitalism. Um, so, you know, so what happens basically as corporations grow, as they centralize, um, you know, acquire other companies, um, the larger companies then have a competitive advantage. Um, you know, Walmart can um, force their distributors um, to, you know, sell at much cheaper rates because they, you know, if you don't work with Walmart, then you're screwed, you know, um, because Walmart has such a monopoly over, um, uh, over the distribution of, of goods, basically. So, um, the, so, so you gain these competitive advantages as larger companies through um, economies of scale, uh, access to credit, access to political benefits, right? These large companies um, donate tons of money to um, politicians. Um, politicians um, want to keep them happy, not only for the sake of donations, but because they want revenue to keep flowing. Um, you know, th these are some of the, the advantages that come alongside of having uh, larger corporations and having um, developing monopoly positions. Um, you know, competition is still in play. It's not that we just get uh, greater and greater companies until one day we just have one giant corporation. Um, there's always upstarts that take advantage of, you know, weaknesses and stagnation in industries, you know, whether that's Tesla or, um, you know, Netflix used to be a small company uh, up against Blockbuster. I don't know how many people even remember Blockbuster at this point. Um, I'm old enough to remember. Um, but, you know, this is, th there's always um, competition still built into capitalism. It doesn't, it's not the case that it disappears, but concentration and centralization are the, you know, kind of an overall tendency um, where capital has developed to, to such a point um, where we have increasingly large uh, corporations uh, within within each which within we uh, each industry um, and that sort and that gets into um, some of what you you touched on um, it it gets into basically the processes of imperialism um, that other Marxist uh, after Marxist time developed um, but that you know 
essentially as companies become larger and larger, um, the interest of capital and the state become increasingly fused, right? Uh, the states depend on the revenue that's produced by capital. They can't function without it. Um, the states then play an active role in managing the you know, long-term corporate interests uh, of, of their own national you know, capitalists, um, um, both at home and abroad. So they defend capital's interests at home against workers, you know, they force people back to work, they reopen the schools, they turn off unemployment benefits, um, et cetera. And then they also uh, enforce capital's interests abroad through things like free trade agreements, enforcing tariffs, um, threatening and making wars, uh, and so on. Um, and and that's, uh, that's part of, of the process that, that, that has taken place over time and um, kind of defines uh, the period of, of time that we live under. Yeah, and I think that point about um, the fusion of the interests of capital um, and uh, the political or ruling class is quite um, potent or applicable today, and, and certainly in, in Ireland, Ireland acting as a tax haven for a lot of international companies, we certainly see here how our domestic policy is so shaped by the interests of capital, and that being international capital, um, a lot of American firms, and even though you would have fractions of the capitalist class um, in America, or even internationally, demanding that um, the tax loopholes be closed, you can see that kind of conflict between the different layers um, and what still at the end of the day wins out is the interests of capital by and large to keep these um, the taxes quite low and to keep society set up in a way that that, that quite uh, that, that benefits their interests. Uh, another thing that I think is crucial that, that you outline quite well, and it's something that I um, it took me quite a long time to grapple with when I started reading Marx, um, was the tendencies towards crisis inbuilt in the capitalist system, uh, ranging from the tendency for the rate of profit to fall to issues around overproduction. Um, and although I think a lot of people um, instinctively understand that there's these crises built into it. You know, we go from boom and bust cycles. I'm only in my mid-20s and I'd be in the third, um, you know, bust cycle, be it the, the crash and now the pandemic. Um, I think we're very lucky in that regard, obviously. Uh, not, but uh, so what are some of these crisis tendencies and, and the contradictions that are outlined by Marx? Yeah, I think part of why it can be a little bit confusing and daunting um, when you're reading Marx and trying to get your head around these um, around these questions is Marx didn't develop one central crisis theory. Um, in there isn't like a place you can go to to read Marx's theory of crisis. Um, he writes about it in, in different pockets in different places, and there's a lot of debates among Marxists um, and radical economists about, about how to understand um, a, a Marxist theory of crisis, you know, which of his um, points are the most important, how do they relate to each other, um, all of these things. Um, there's, there's a lot of debates among, among Marxists um, about how to understand it. And I think, you know, one thing that is maybe, you know, maybe sh the part that shouldn't be debatable, perhaps, um, at least among Marxists, is that 
the process of accumulating profits, you know, just that that accumulation of capital is inherently rife with contradictions. And that and that is because the system is based on making profits, not meeting needs. So for instance, you know, we don't have under capitalism, we don't have housing, we have a housing market, you know, and those are very different things, you know, how you would go about organizing construction. um, If you didn't have a housing market, if you just had housing, because you were trying to house people um, would be, you know, it, it would, it would be a complicated question. It wouldn't be super simple, but you could figure it out. I think um, pretty well, you know, you'd figure out, okay, where is there the need? How do we marshal the right amount of materials and the people to build this housing? But if you're trying to organize um, construction of housing on the basis of a housing market for profits, then um, that is a lot more of a complicated thing to figure out because you're not just asking yourself, you know, who and how many and where is their need, but you you have to find out what capitalists call effective demand, meaning who has the money to spend, not just who needs housing. Um, how much are they willing to pay? Um, how much debt can they afford to take on? Um, all of these are moving parts. Um, and what and what is at the end of the day the most profitable way um, for housing to be made and sold? Um, and so that is um, a complicated process to figure out. If it and it and it, you know it would be complicated enough if it was just one industry trying to work that through. But within each industry, right, there's a lot of different companies competing with each other, not planning collectively to figure out how to meet even effective demand. Um, You know, and so that, you know, that whole way of of organizing or disorganizing uh, production is at the heart of how capitalism works. Um, And so, you know, at the heart of it, capitalist organization of the economy separates the process of production, which is all about producing a profit for an individual company with a process of competition, uh, sorry, of consumption, um, which is regulated through, you know, exchange on the market. Um, And so, you know, all of those um, kind of basic foundations of capitalism um, have built into them a lot of um, contradictions and difficulties. Um, you know, a couple of the main th- contradictions that, that Marx goes through and that I emphasize in my book um, is one is the, the crisis, a crisis of overproduction, that because there is um, this competition going on all the time to produce more and more to, to grab more and more market share. Um, each capitalist is trying to produce as much as possible, as quickly as possible in order to grab market share. Um, and so there's, there's inherently built in a growth of um, whether that's products or services or what have you um, that's going on all the time under capitalism. Um, the drive to accumulate further and further profit. Um, And that that drive is unhinged 
it's not, you know, it's not necessarily connected to um, a growing consumer demand. Um, it may at times overlap with a growing consumer demand. It, it often feeds into each other because when one industry is producing a lot, it fuels demand in other industries um, for the part component parts or what have you, um, or the services to support um, the workers that are, you know, in those industries. So it can build upon itself. Um, but, but what that often means is a sort of like, you know, a snowball effect um, where there's greater and greater production across industries. And when that hits some kind of, uh, some kind of a wall, um, you know, things can fall apart very quickly. Um, it's a, a crisis of overproduction. There's another um, important piece that, that Marx talks about, about, you know, the tendency for the rate of profit to fall, which is um, often a little bit of an intimidating concept for people. And it's the subject of much debate um, to what extent uh, it, it exists, to what extent it, it, ex it explains um, the crises in, in the economy. Um, but the, the basic kind of um, broad brush strokes is that because labor and the exploitation of labor is what ultimately produces a profit, um, that the tendency of capitalism to rely on less and less labor, um, the tendency of each individual capitalist to try to invest in more and more machinery and lay off workers in order to save costs um, and raise productivity um, means that the part of the um, production process that produces profit, labor, um, is in smaller and smaller quantity relative to having to invest in machineries, um, which in Marx's terms, you know, pass on the value of their worth, but they don't create new value. Um, and so you have a, um, a grow, uh, uh, a smaller and smaller uh, rate of profit. Right, yeah. Um, and I think crucial when I was understanding um, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall was an understanding that the the position competition plays. And obviously Marx outlines that, that there's like a coercive... Competition in the capitalist system is like a coercive force um, that pushes all the different capitalist entities to like buy that new machinery and find that new innovation that allows them to produce their products at a lower amount in order to, you know, push out um, their, their, their competitors. And because of that, as you said, there's a tendency to rely less and less on labour. Um, so you have that kind of downward push on, on prices of, of products, um, which has a like a, a related push down of profits was kind of my understanding of it. I don't know if that is, uh, if that's correct, um, in your view. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. think, I think that that makes sense. And I, and I think that, um, you know, a, a big part of it too is, you know, you drive down the cost of individual goods, um, and you have to, at the same time, increase the number of goods because yes. you don't just want to have, uh, the same amount of goods for fewer amount of, yes. um, you know, uh, profits. Um, so you have to increase the number of goods that you're selling and that feeds into 
kind of this process of overproduction. Right. And that and that leads to further issues with where do you put that surplus? Like you have all of this production. Um, and I know something that David Harvey talks a lot about is how that's how you see so much spending on urbanization uh, projects or uh, military industrial complex get so much spending because obviously that is like a, a sinkhole for surplus uh, to go into and that, that ties into to questions of imperialism and, and extraction elsewhere. Um, just a, another thing that I wanted to touch on. So you mentioned earlier that um, really, the capitalist system sees labor as like a free gift, um, a free source of value. But another thing that has been developed by various Marxists um, and eco-socialist theorists since Marx has been, um, and it was touched on originally by Marx and Engels, certainly uh, in a lot of their work, was that the view of nature as well as like a free gift, um, like a free thing for capital to t- tap into um, and to extract from as a way of bolstering profits um, and things. But and that ties into a major crisis that we're facing at the moment is the environmental crisis, uh, questions of emissions and the need to transform societies in less environmentally damaging ways. Um, how do you view, like, how does the Marxist understanding um, inform a view of environmental crises and what does Marx have to say on this question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Marx talked, you know, exactly as you were raising it, right, that Marx talked about um, labor and the earth as being um, the, um, the, the, the wealth um, uh, that, that is produced um, by capitalism. It comes from, from labor and it comes from the earth, um, that that produces uh, all, all wealth um, in our society. Um, and uh, Marx actually corrected the um, classical economists um, who actually did talk about labor as being um, the heart of, of wealth under capitalism. And he said, actually, no, it's, it's, it's labor and it's, um, and it's nature. Um, but I, so I think, you know, a few things to say. One is that clearly capitalism uh, and Marx talked about this, um, see see labor and see the earth as inputs into a production process, right? Not as, um, you know, precious treasures uh, to maintain the health and sustainability and life of, but as inputs into a production process um, to create a a profit. Um, You know, the extraction of of oil from the earth, you know, oil could just be an interesting and fascinating part of the way that our world works. There's nothing inherently uh, grotesque about oil, um, but it is extracted in a very grotesque way and in a very unsustainable way uh, because it fuels the production process. And I think at the heart of capitalism, what is deeply problematic about capitalism is that short-term profits are the guiding force of capitalism. And so it, it's, it may very well be the case that a lot of um, capitalists, you know, they have families and they probably, you know, have some bit of soul left in them or what have you. Um, <clears throat> but 
you know, they, they may not want to destroy the planet for good. Um, but the entire nature of, uh, capitalist production is to, um, have short-term profits, uh, in order to compete with your competitors. And so, um, any regulations and any inhibitions on capitalism's ability to produce as quickly and as profitably and as efficiently as possible um, are problems for capitalism, not solutions as they should be for for us and for the planet. Um, And so if any single country regulates its own you know, not just a fossil fuel industry, but all the corporations that depend on, um, on, on oil and on, um, you know, um, burning emissions and on, you know, the Pentagon in the U.S. is the single greatest um, emitter of, um, of emissions um, in the world, I believe. Any, any country that regulates its own capitalist class will then, um, you know, fall behind uh, other countries uh, and, and, and the ability of companies in those countries to, to get ahead. And that's always the name of the game under capitalism, right? Um, it's, it's based on short-term profits. It's based on, um, you know, winning a short-term competition at all costs. Um, And so the only way to actually fight for a sustainable society is to take power out of the hands of capitalists. Um, It's not to try to negotiate with them to be better capitalists, uh, but it's to force them to, um, you know, either function um, in the way that we we need to by regulating, by nationalizing, by, um, you know, um, by um, eventually shutting down um, various industries. Um, We have that has to be enforced upon them by by us, not uh, waiting and hoping that they uh, will do the right thing. That's a good explanation of things, and in my mind, a good place to wrap things up. As mentioned before, listeners can find all the topics that were discussed here, and much, much more described in great detail in the book, which will be linked below. Thanks a million for joining me, Thanks so much for having me. Your head's fucked. You stick your trousers on and your last bit of makeup. Your last coat 